Hey everybody, Rob North here from the Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades podcast. Just saying that if you like what we do and you'd like to support us financially and get access to exclusive content, you can go to patreon.com slash trrpod. As always, hold fast and on with the show. So I was happening to scan through social media, and a little something popped up on. I believe it was your feed, Chris. Well, of course it was. You wouldn't get this this kind of this kind of breaking news kind of hard anywhere else. Um, care to tell me what it was about? Uh, news news came across today. Sporting news uh, mm-hmm. from Canada, our neighbors to the north. Uh, there was a, a splash signing by the Argonauts, the Canadian Football League. Uh, they signed the, veteran, the, the Toronto Argonauts. The Toronto Argonauts. Yeah. Welcome to the six. Uh, veteran defensive tackle Poop Johnson. Poop Johnson. Poop Johnson. Poop Johnson. Now his real name is apparently uh, it's Corey. Corey, Corey but he's Johnson. got the nickname Poop. He prefers poop. Yeah, as we all do. <laughs> he prefers poop. I, I need a jersey. Like yeah. I, I have a team now. I have a rooting interest in the, in the CFL. Now that I, I can root for like 35 football leagues just in the last week. This yeah. is a big deal for, for any sports fan. Between the, uh, between the emergence of the AAF and the... Uh, XFL's the coming of, back next X, year. And yeah, the XFL's coming back and the acquisition of Poop Johnson by the Toronto Argonauts. That's a big signing. And we've got a CFL team now. Poop Johnson just sounds like an unfortunate porn name. <laughs> Uh, that was a, a third voice yeah. that you just heard. Yeah, we're uh, actually, uh, of course, this is Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. I'm Rob North. I am your co-host, Chris Miller. And we're actually joined by a third entity in Chris's kitchen today. Uh, our good friend, Kyle Graper, uh, fellow renegade of the Rotunda, fellow history enthusiast, fellow pirate enthusiast, fellow uh, rogue and renegade enthusiast. Kyle, what's going on, man? How are you doing today? I'm well. I'm well. Uh, exhausted as always, but... Mm-hmm. Oh, you're a busy sweated. man. Right, mm-hmm. you're over thirty. You're just tired forever. Yeah, that's how I tried to explain it to one of the like sixteen year olds that I work with now. I'm like, well, what's it like when you're thirty? It's like, well, you wake up one day and you're tired forever mm-hmm. until the day you die. Yep, chasing the... kids off the lawn takes a lot of work. <laughs> just craving the sweet release of oblivion, right? You know, like, and you've got a knee that just doesn't yeah. work right. Ever. And you know, your your idea of carpe diem just kind of goes right out the damn window. Um, Although today we're actually going to be talking about a guy who I think it can be certainly said he lived life as he thought, as he saw fit. Uh, we're talking about a guy named Gregor McGregor today. That's a real name. It's a real name. That's a real name. That's, that's yeah. a whole ass name is what that is. That's, that's, that's somebody's parents spent nights up coming up with that one. <laughs> so Gregor McGregor was a Scottish soldier, adventurer, mercenary, uh, eccentric, and con man. Who lived a life of sheer what the fuckness is the only way I can describe it. Yeah, that's, that's fairly accurate. And he went on to commit possibly the biggest fraud in history as the cazique of the South American kingdom of Poyer. I think I'm, I don't know how they're supposed to be pronounced. I haven't seen the little. There, there's a lot of details yeah. regarding Poyas, Poyer, uh, whatever it may be, that weren't weren't necessarily entirely fleshed out. But that. My friends, is a story for another day. Because this is going to be a two-parter episode. Uh, there is so much material here, and this guy had such a long, weird life that contained just so many interesting stories that there was no way we'd be do- able to do it in the space of one episode. Yeah, so we're gonna we're going to give you 
uh, a primer on Gregor McGregor mm-hmm. uh, in episode one. And in episode two, we're going to take the entire episode to talk about what is probably the greatest con in history. Ever. Ever. I, I haven't seen anything that even compares to it. It's it's the fire Festival times a million. It really is. It's the fire Festival. Well, it's the fire Festival if social media didn't exist. Yeah. If, you had, to do, if you had to do the legwork. If Ja Rule yeah. was out there petitioning the king... <laughs> Murder! And just like yelling and drinking at, at the king for just days on end. <laughs> if 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 Ja Rule and that and that chubby dude who was so good at self promotion had to go to an actual printing press to make things happen, right? This is what you get. Yo yo, you you uh, paint me, paint me with the girls and swim with the pigs. It's <laughs> gonna be on a private island. Oh. So. <laughs> All right, oh, I think man. we've wasted this enough Genghis time. This Khan's island, dog. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh. Stop it. Stop it. Murder. Blackbeard's <laughs> on this island, dog. Okay, oh, man, we're breaking down so quick. Just so imagine what next week's going to be. Yeah. Like, so. so let's just get, guys, what do you say? We just get straight just, into the story. Just go for it. Go for it. The All story right. of Gregor McGregor, the world's greatest bunko. So Gregor McGregor was born on Christmas Eve, 1786, in his family's ancestral home of Glengyle in Stirlingshire in central Scotland. His father was Daniel McGregor, an East India Company sea captain, and his mother was named Anne. That's really all we know about his parents. Uh, The family was Roman Catholic, and they had a history of rebellion against the Protestant kings of Scotland and England for the previous two centuries, including taking a major part in the large Jacobite risings of 1689, 1715, and 1745, there were a bunch of them, uh, to depose the House of Hanover and install a Stuart King on the English throne. Such was the role that the family played in these rebellions that Gregor's great-great-uncle was none other than the famed outlaw and folk hero Rob Roy, also known as Rob Roy McGregor. Now, Gregor would also claim later in life that a direct ancestor of his, unnamed in all of our sources, survived the disastrous Darien scheme of 1698, uh, which was an ill-fated attempt to create a colony from scratch on the Isthmus of Panama called Caledonia, and it was beset by poor planning and provisioning, divided leadership, devastating disease epidemics, and attacks by the Spanish. Now, the failure of the colony led to the death of over 2,000 of the 2,500 colonists and the loss of over 20% of the money circulating in Scotland at the time. So it led to financial ruin in the lowlands, and I would say, actually... A lot of people would say that it made Scotland less resistant to the Act of Union in 1707 and allowed Scotland to be absorbed into Great Britain. Now, such was the clan's nature to go against the ruling administration that in 1604, they had been prescribed by King James VI, also King James I of England, for the next 170 years. They were prevented from holding any government office, taking part in any sort of government pension, having any member of the clan married in the Presbyterian Church, and they were prevented from using their own last name under pain of death. (laughs) So you can't call yourself McGregor without getting your head cut off. Now, in 1774, this prescription was finally uh, lifted, and Clan McGregor could once again proudly bear their own name. Now, little is recorded of Gregor's childhood. His father died in 1794 when Gregor was only five, leaving him and his two sisters to be raised by their mother and various relatives, although in relative financial comfort due to the clan's resources and their family's wealth. He would have spent most of his childhood speaking Gaelic, as that was the predominant language in Stirlingshire at the time, probably wouldn't have started learning English until he was started school at the age of five or six. Now, knowing what we know of Scottish education at this time, however, we can be sure that he learned the classical curriculum of Latin, Greek, mathematics, 
bookkeeping, geography, and likely French and also land surveying. <laughs> so still better and more practical than the U.S. education system today. Yeah, it's better than Common Core. And he had a C++ class in there, too, but he was just taking that to fill it. Just, yeah. To, 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 to get the requirements. Yeah. yeah, to get that computer science elective all filled out. <laughs> now, McGregor would also claim later in life to have studied at the University of Edinburgh at the ten, uh, tender age of 15, uh, between 1802 and 1803, although no official record exists of this as he was only there for a year and he didn't take a degree. Although, according to uh, David Sinclair, author of Our Main Source, The Land That Never Was, uh, paired with our secondary source, General McGregor, Hero or Rogue, by Charles E. Bennett. So, he thinks that the McGregors, that this actually is plausible, because in the early 1800s, the McGregors would have been a highly educated family, and his mother's side of the family was well-established and had many... Uh, connections in Scotland's capital, Edinburgh. Now, Gregor would also claim at the end of his life to have amassed a collection of some 1,500 books, which actually isn't bad for anyone of the time, let alone a semi-itinerant soldier of fortune. Now, McGregor's time at the university was short-lived, however, and in less than a year, having met the minimum age of 16, he took after the military traditions of his family, and he joined the British Army, having used his family's funds and influence to purchase a commission as an ensign for 450 pounds, which is about $64,000 today. And that's, again, whenever you purchase a commission, you are quite literally buying an officer's rank. Yes. This, yes. This is the first in, in a long line of greased palms that will kind of, you'll, you'll see, follow uh, Gregor McGregor through his illustrious career. Yeah, this is still a very stratified society. There's mm. still very much a clear-cut upper class and lower class. And there's an emerging merchant middle class, and that's kind of why they had these abilities to purchase these commissions. Normally, you can only get a commissions officer's position if you were from the upper class, from the aristocracy. And so, And the McGregors were, uh, to put it bluntly, filthy, stinking rich. Yes. Uh, his grandfather was a lord, a laird, I mm-hmm. believe was the word, of Inverdeen. Um, but they were landed, they had acres and acres and acres like he grew up in a castle for Christ's sake like yeah. it was it, it, things were pretty good for him from the get go relatively speaking so they found a vacancy in the 57th Middlesex Foot Regiment the commander of the regiment General Campbell of Stracker was a family friend and may have eased young Gregor's entry into the unit now the 57th were described as quote fighting villains and went by the nickname Steelbacks for the lashings they had to endure as part of their as part of their lives because their discipline was so terrible. And they were described after uh, after inspection by visiting General Thus. Quote, From the description of the men of which it is composed, it will probably never arrive at what what be call at what would be called a fine regiment, but it is a serviceable one. Just the facts, Jack! Yeah! <laughs> Thank you for bringing that movie back into my life. You're welcome, man. That's a great flick. <laughs> Conor McGregor is definitely in stripes. <laughs> you mean Gregor McGregor? <laughs> you mean Gregor McGregor, right? I, I've been calling him Conor McGregor the whole time. <laughs> Jeez, oh, here we go. This is not, that's not sorry, the like, last it's, time it's going to happen. No, it's not. It, and I've been doing it, and I have a couple references. They're actually for next week's show. <laughs> <laughs> so Gregor's entry into the regiment also happened to coincide with Britain's return to hostilities against a minor little-known historical figure named Napoleon Bonaparte. So the 57th was posted to Ashford in England's south coast to fortify against a feared French invasion. Now here, Gregor would have been trained in the ways of the officer corps, learning maneuvers, drilling, regulations, but also picking up a keen skill in administration, organization, processing and communicating large amounts of information, and a key eye for detail. Now all of these things will serve him later when it comes to his more ambitious exploits. 
Now, within a year, McGregor was promoted to lieutenant, which is actually really something, and it shows and that he was not commissioned. Like he, he was didn't not, purchase the commission. He didn't he pay was, for it. He was promoted, and it normally takes at least three years to achieve the rank of lieutenant. So he did it within a year. So he he, he must have showed some pretty serious skill at the job because he's seventeen years old and he's in charge of about thirty men. He's clearly a very bright man. Yes, even as a young man, like he's clearly very very intelligent. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, he's he's educated, he's smart, he's driven. This we can't fault him for at all. Uh, now at the same time, the 57th was moved to garrison the charming island of Guernsey in the English Channel, and for the next year, young Gregor took advantage of the ease of garrison life to intimate himself with the social perks of being part of the officer class. Uh, using his good looks, his charm, <coughs> excuse me, and his roguish Highland manner to secure himself many invitations to balls and parties. And it was during this year, 1804 when Gregor was introduced to a young lady named Maria Bowater, who had impeccable social credentials, being the daughter of a late admiral, the niece of two generals, the younger sister of a member of parliament, and the cousin of Aylmer Burke Lambert, head of botany at the Royal Society. So this was a rich society girl. Now, in addition to social cachet, Maria would have commanded a substantial dowry as well, or the bride price, uh, enough to more than satisfy Gregor's ambitions and his delusions of grandeur. Now, the 57th was transferred to a posting at the island rock fortress of Gibraltar at Spain's southern tip, which was an English possession. Now, Gregor obtained leave, and in June 1805, he married Maria at St. Margaret's Church in Westminster, although they barely had time to purchase a small townhouse in London with some inheritance money from an uncle before he had to return to his regiment. Two months later, having returned to the 57th, Gregor purchased the rank of captain for some 900 pounds, or about $128,000, uh, with some of the sources believing that he actually borrowed against the impending reception of his dowry in order to get the money. That's rather, a lot of dough. Yeah. yeah. Well, That's rather than, a lot of dough. Well, yeah, rather than waiting the seven years it normally took to achieve the rank through merit. And they think it was because he was taking some stick from his new in-laws. They're getting after Maria for going, why did you marry a lowly lieutenant? Because each each regiment had about 30 lieutenants in it. So it's not that high of a rank. It's a relatively junior officer. So the higher your rank, you know, the better your your family's going to treat you. So, yeah, he's basically buying position. So with his new more senior rank and a good posting in a hard-to-assault garrison closer to the actual war, the table seems set for Gregor to ascend through the ranks and achieve wealth and position with relative ease. However, it was during this posting to Gibraltar that Gregor starts to become kind of his own worst enemy as his purchased success went to his head. To quote one of his fellow officers, writing decades later, quote, McGregor was spoiled by prosperity, and his versatility and haughtiness of disposition soon overturned his flattering prospects. He began to display something of an obsession with extreme affectation of dress and fashion, and an overpowering fondness for the niceties of distinctions of rank and the imposing spectacle of honorary badges and tangible tokens of merit. He permitted neither private nor non-commissioned officer to appear out of quarters unless dressed to the extreme of their ability and accompanied by a handsome walking cane, and they had particular orders never to associate with the battalion men unless of a superior grade to themselves. So he wouldn't let his own soldiers leave quarters without being in full parade dress uniform. With a pimp cane. With a pimp pimp cane. The silver-tipped... A jeweled chalice. Jeweled chalice, big green hat sunglasses, basically Bishop Don Magic Wand with Sergeant Stripes. Yeah, they were just going to the Player Haters Ball. <laughs> oh, no. Player Haters Ball 1812. Chris Miller, 
with another out of the blue pop culture <laughs> reference from the early to mid 2000s. Hey, well done, hey, my friend. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> uh, so for the next four years, McGregor made an utter nuisance of himself in garrison, earning the hatred of the men under his command and the exasperation of his fellow officers, who saw a man more uh, concerned with parade ground appearance than actually doing his job. Good old fashioned soldiering. He's a martinet, is what he is. I mean, he's he's not in it for the soldiering. He's not in it for the glory. He's in it for the fancy balls and the fancy dress and all the affectations of the officer class. So by 1809, the 57th time on Gibraltar came to an end as the regiment was seconded to the vicious Iberian Peninsula campaign under against Napoleon, which for a total of six years had a British expeditionary army under the Duke of Wellington, with the help of the Portuguese and some Spanish soldiers, attempting to drive the French out of Spain and Portugal. In a campaign that featured many rounds of bold maneuvers, fierce set-piece battles, brutal sieges, brave last stands, even a Dunkirk-style evacuation. If you're a fan of history and you're a fan of military history and you haven't read about the Iberian campaign, I highly suggest you do. It's very, very interesting. Now, in July 1809, the 57th joined Wellington's army in Portugal and spent about two months marching and skirmishing, never really fighting a big set-piece battle. They were finally garrisoned at Elvas near the Spanish border, where McGregor was removed from the 57th and seconded to the 8th Line Battalion of the Portuguese Army as a liaison officer. Now, he received a promotion to major. He goes up a step in rank. But this move was apparently due to a very minor disagreement <coughs> excuse me, between McGregor and a fellow company commander that saw Gregor aggravate matters to the point where he nearly ordered his own men to fire on the other officer's unit. <laughs> I mean, how much of a pain in the ass do you have to be to, to to take it to that point? And this is the point where men are still fighting duels. I have another pop culture reference if you want me to throw it out. Oh, please do. D- uh, Douglas Niedermeyer killed by his own men in Vietnam. Jesus Christ. <laughs> God. Topical. I'm all over it today, man. I'm all over it. I watch a lot well, makes, yeah, of television. Makes, it makes me wonder why there wasn't a moment of, like, let's frag the captain. Right. What was the movie where they... If anybody, des- if anybody deserved it. I mean, yeah, you'd have to roll a whole little <laughs> barrel of gunpowder under his bed at night. <laughs> it's not quite as practical. But so, yeah, so McGregor is sent to a different unit in a different army <laughs> to calm things down. They, they want him they out of the regiment just so badly. A different war because they were probably fighting six or seven at the same time yeah. because this is European history we're talking about. So the only problem was that in in an army where the alliances are so important, <laughs> moving McGregor to the Portuguese had the exact opposite effect that they wanted. Mm-hmm. He showed the Portuguese his absolute disdain for them. He refused to learn a single word of Portuguese. He was apparently a massive drunk. He smoked too many cigars. He ate too much. <laughs> he was constantly challenging the Portuguese officers to duels, except they didn't know what was going on because he was doing it in English. <laughs> And he was so arrogant and continually obsessed with the whole parade ground appearance thing, the commander of the Portuguese division he was a part of threatened to take his 5,000 badly needed men and go home and leave the fight. (laughs) So the English commander in this this section of the campaign, a guy named Marshall Beresford, actually took enough notice that he tried to honorably dismiss McGregor to avoid embarrassing his family name. He was very courtly about it. He was very gentlemanly about it. McGregor refused to go. He would not leave. So finally an offer was made that if he retired early, he's 23 years old at this time. Keep this in mind. He's better part of a decade younger than any of the three of us sitting in here. (laughs) 
<laughs> he would just be paid back the money he spent on his commissions, all 1,350 pounds, like $230,000, if he would just fucking leave. He would just stop alienating the Portuguese. Yeah, if you could not, if you could please not break down the alliance that we're using to defeat Napoleon, that would be great. So my professional mistakes have been not being irritating enough. Yeah, pretty much. Well, we don't work together, so yeah, by all means, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they'll love it at your office. They're going to oh, yeah. love it. They're going to love you. And so in May of uh, 1810, McGregor took his, his payout and he left the British Army well before the 57th famous historic stand at the Battle of Albuera in May of 1811, which would earn them the nickname the Diehards, which would lead McGregor to make a whole lot of his association with the regiment thereafter. He would constantly claim to be a, have been present at the Battle of Albuera, although he had been gone from the regiment by over a year at that point. So upon his return to Britain, Gregor and Maria move into a little house in Edinburgh rented by Gregor's mother. He duly assumes the title of colonel, was never paid as a colonel, was never officially made a colonel, never received the commission. Yeah, he just, he, he gives himself a lot of titles. Yeah. Uh, he wore the titles. badge of a Portuguese knightly order that he apparently stole off a dead yeah, man. Yeah, he was a, a knight... Of the Portuguese Order of Christ, mm -hmm. which he, in reality, wasn't. He was not. <laughs> and he toured the city in an extravagant coach. Uh, but he was forced, and, and he also had apparently footmen who were dressed very much in a style that was quite outdated by this point. Mm. This is whenever he was walking around saying he was the head of Clan McGregor, whenever he just was not. Was not. <laughs> like, there, there was one. Yeah. <laughs> and just, eh, no, it's me. It's fine. Well, he Come never on, said but. he was the head of Clan McGregor. We're about to get to that, though. He was, now, he was forced to move back down to London after his lofty heirs failed to make a good impression on the close-ranked Edinburgh <laughs> society. Here's the thing. These He's are Scots. Town. These are Scots. These are not the people who are going to be impressed by a fancy cook. <laughs> He's just walking in with his cane and his we just a whole bunch yeah, of guys again. sitting there drinking whiskey going, who the fuck's this prick? I mean, it's not the impression you want to make. So basically, he realized he was trying to kick water uphill, trying to make a place in Edinburgh society. So he moves down to London where that stuff still flies. And we split his time between London and the Isle of Wight. And he styled himself as the heir to a Highland baron set to receive chiefdom of Clan that's McGregor. Right, that's right. Claiming that he was the heir to the leadership of Clan McGregor. Now, none of this was true, of course. Nor was his claimed associations with the Dukes of Montrose, Northumberland, Athol, and Gordon, the Marquis of Londonderry, or the long list of other earls and barons that he name-dropped constantly. I hate this dude so How much. easy was it to bullshit before social media? Well, he wasn't, because he was jealous. never officially, because Clan McGregor were not officially a part of the, of the nobility. It had only been 30 years, 35 years, since they had not been prescribed, so they hadn't quite worked their way back into the upper class. Since then, they have. Uh, they've, re they've received peerdoms, I believe, later in the 1800s, but at, back then, he had no connections to the nobility. Now, what's odd is during this period of his return to the shores of Britain, nobody really seemed all that keen to challenge any of the claims he made. Nobody called him out on his shit. Most people just blew him off. But disaster would strike for poor Gregor in December 1811 when his beloved wife Maria died suddenly. None of the sources seemed to give a cause of death. Uh, the timing also coincided with the point of running out of the last of his wife's money because he'd been using it to give the impression of status and wealth. So Gregor's in a little bit of a bother. If he tries to marry another heiress, the Bowater family, by now on to his charade, might have something to say about it and make the engagement a tricky proposition. If he returns to farm the ancestral lands of Clan McGregor as a country gentry, as a member of the country gentry, he's absolutely going to be bored off of his tit. 
And he can't rejoin the military based upon the circumstances of his exit the first time. When they actually pay you to leave, they kind of don't want you back. <laughs> now, he could begin a life of crime, but besides the deceits based upon his status, he never really seemed to have any kind of criminal ambitions or skills. There was one place, however, that attracted retired soldiers and adventure seekers like moths to a flame at this point, and that's South America. In the early 19th century, most of the Spanish colonies in South and Central America took advantage of Spain's part in the Napoleonic Wars to launch rebellions to achieve their independence, much on the model of the American War of Independence, which had been fought only a few decades before. Now, the struggle that caught McGregor's eye was the bid for independence of Venezuela, where seven of ten provinces had declared themselves a free republic. Now, an encounter at a London party with a revolutionary uh, leader named General Francisco de Miranda, who was in Britain trying to drum up financial and military support, gave Gregor an idea. If he could turn himself once again into the dashing hero, freedom fighter, and adventurer, what was to stop him from achieving fame and fortune upon his return to Britain? Securing an invitation to every society party, you have women falling at his feet, and you have his exploits turning into legend. Now, Chris, you turned me on to a little tidbit of information about Francisco de Miranda. I have two hot takes about Miranda, and and, and the one we discussed earlier. Um, it was uh, with Miranda uh, crossing paths with Catherine the Great, as uh, as as many men of the time were wont to do. And my theory is this: they was fucking Catherine the Great Tsarina of Russia. Yes, they that, was fucking that Catherine the Great. <laughs> that Catherine, yeah, that the Catherine. Great. Okay, was before or after the horse. Well, I mean, for his sake, I kind of hope it was before. before. I mean, I. Oh. Moving on. Moving on. <laughs> uh, my my second hot take is uh, reading about uh, Francisco de Miranda. Uh, he wanted to form this new Incan Empire. Mm-hmm. You know, like talked about you know, paving the streets with gold again and, and carving out this this fantastic idyllic place in South America. Funny considering that both of his parents were from Spain and the guy didn't have a drop of Incan blood in him. No, but I. <laughs> But for well, it's a romantic idea. How how would that be all that different mm-hmm. than a rich kid from Scotland saying, "Hey, we've got this great yeah. place in Poirier. You guys might want to check it out and give me all your money, also." Well, shining city on a hill, inspired by Athens in ancient Greece, it's yep. the classical ideal they're trying. But to it, I feel it. like the the Incan Empire may have had some influence on on Big Mac. Yeah, maybe a little bit. Big Mac. So, McGregor, the notorious McGregor. So Gregor sold all of his remaining assets in Britain. He set sail in early 1812. He stops in Kingston, Jamaica along the way. Uh, And this nearly derails his plans because... As it has many a plan. (laughs) Well, well, because... Yeah, we know why. Yes. We all know that Jaws in the Nog. Jaws in the Nog and everything B.R.E. For some reason, Conor McGregor just chilled out. (laughs) Gregor McGregor? God damn it. Uh, I kept calling him the Notorious. This just ruined a whole damn now thing. I'm just imagining Gregor McGregor covered in bad tattoos and oh, fights God. next to buses. Oh, and just, just being exposed as a fraud and getting his ass with just whooped by one angry Russian. hanging out of his mouth, too, in Jamaica. <laughs> so, I read. I read. So, this <laughs> nearly... your boy. Well, it seems he was tempted to sail... <laughs> It seems as he was tempted to settle there amongst the wealthy planters and the sugar merchants, although it seems like he didn't find a place in society or a place to live, neither uh, that suited his pretensions. I mean, this is a guy who suffered from huge delusions of grandeur. I mean, he, he he thought he was a king. And so he set sail again in April 1812. He finally lands in the revolutionary hotbed of Caracas. 
Now, of course, he couldn't have rocked up at a worse time. Most of Caracas had just been destroyed by an earthquake two weeks earlier. The Royalist Army had control of a majority of the country, and they'd spent several months just beating the Republican rebels up one side and down the other. And the new Republican government was losing support. It was completely fractured, and infighting was starting to emerge. And they had no money. Now, having offered his services to Miranda, McGregor was given the rank of colonel and the command of a cavalry regiment, and he actually wasted no time in securing a pretty significant victory against the mid-sized royalist force. So he shows up. He makes a a very good impression, and he's actually... He's got a sound tactical mind. He distinguishes himself very sometimes. Well, yeah. yeah, this is one of his high points. This is one of his bright points. He makes himself a local hero. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that, having spent less than two months in the country by June 10th, he's promoted to brigadier general, and he marries, wait for it, Doña Josefa Antonia Andrea Cabella de Bolivar Aristeguieta y Lovera, who we're just going to call Josefa. Josefa. <laughs> Uh, she was actually cousin of the famed freedom fighter Simone Bolivar. Guess who her cousin was? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, daughter of a uh, prominent Caracas fam- uh, family. Now, happiness was tempered with misfortune as just after they married, the revolutionary government capitulated to royalist forces. Miranda gets captured. Now, Bolivar, McGregor, Josefa, and uh, other members of the re- uh, rebel leadership have to flee to the Dutch island of Curacao, although Gregor quickly grows bored with island life and offers his service to... Venezuela's revolutionary neighbor, New Granada. Now, lodging Josefa in Jamaica, he joined the army of General Antonio Nariño and was given command of 1,200 men. And while he increased their discipline and fighting ability, he made the same sort of impression he made on the Portuguese, uh, according to a letter written by a rebel official, quote, I am sick and tired of this bluffer, this Quixote, or the devil knows what. (laughs) This man can hardly serve us in New Granada without heaping 10,000 embarrassments upon us. How good of a slam is to call someone a Quixote? Quixote. Yeah, that's a wow. He's, yeah, I mean he's right too. Tilting at windmills. They saw through him immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, well, it makes you wonder. Is like these guys can see through him immediately. Yet London, Edinburgh, nobody there could. I wonder. I, I don't know why. And and he actually is it the played. And, he had, well, he that's had the thing. actually played down his pretensions to the nobility amongst this new kind of Republican class. Could he yeah. speak their language? Absolutely not. Still, no, so no, still, not all. I like, bet that was a part of it. Absolutely no. not. He never bothered to learn Spanish. He never bothered bothered to learn Portuguese. He was Bolivar's right hand man. Yeah, but a lot of the these a lot of these military men they saw right through him. They wanted nothing to do with mm-hmm. him. So not even being, though like. Uh, yeah. the, like we said, he did distinguish himself with these these acts of bravery and and his he, he his role in decisive battles and some of the epic time. campaigns. But some now, of the time, it turns out he was probably bullshitting the whole yeah. time. So within months, Gregor returned. Uh, he he's, he realizes he's not welcome in New Granada. He returns to the back and forth fighting that's still going on in Venezuela, playing a quote honorable but not conspicuous part end quote in the fighting. Now, after a daring escape and a few gunboats from Cartagena, the port of Cartagena. Gregor and Bolivar come to Jamaica for safety and to regroup, where Gregor actually finally starts to receive the hailing as a hero that he desired, with one Englishman actually toasting him as the Hannibal of modern Carthage. Wow. Ooh. Oh, man. Which is high oh, that's gotta That's got to make him drop. That, that, that goes, that's got to go to a man's head. So throughout 1816, McGregor took part in more back-and-forth fighting that by the end of the year had actually helped secure victory over the Spanish forces in Venezuela, if not recognition of independence from the Spanish government itself. Now, we're going to fast forward. March of 1817 sees a, a pretty interesting affair develop in which McGregor would play a significant part. It was decided by this revo- these, all these revolutionary leaders that a diversionary attack should be launched on settlements in the Spanish colony of Florida. 
and McGregor sailed to Philadelphia to set to work. He raised a force of several hundred men throughout the Mid-Atlantic and the Carolinas, and he secured $160,000 in funding from investors, about $6 million bucks today. So in June, he took 100 men. He launches a nighttime attack on the small fort at Amelia Island, which is just off of Florida's northeast coast, causing the Spanish commander to surrender. He musters 200 more men to Amelia Island. He announces that he's created a Republic of the Floridas and proceeds to make a right mess of things. <laughs> He's going to say, and almost immediately. immediately. He starts, so it, Amelia Island is a pirate's nest. He starts taxing the pirate's booty at an exorbitant amount in what he called Admiralty Courts. And he starts seizing and selling back to the southern U.S. states dozens, if not hundreds, of escaped slaves who had taken refuge on the island. Which is a, oh. not a good move. Not oh. a great move. Yeah, kind of a dick move. Uh, all the while not paying any of his men while hundreds of Spanish militia mustered on the mainland, causing discipline and morale to plummet. So September 3rd, 1817, McGregor announced that he's leaving and abandoning the venture, explaining vaguely that he had been, quote, deceived by his friends, and he promptly sa- just gets on a ship, sails off to Nassau, where he immediately has memorial coins struck bearing the insignias Amalia Veni Vidi Vici, which of course means Amelia, I came, I saw, I conquered. I hate him so much. And, and, I hate this guy hold on, so much. Hold on. It gets so much worse. Oh no, it, it does get worse. And, and Duque Mac Gregorio Libertas Floridarium, Stop which means liberty for the Floridas under the leadership of McGregor. Stop it. So in the interest of fact, the men in Amelia Island actually defeated two Spanish assaults. They were reinforced by 300 men under the Cajun mercenary Louis-Michel Ori and actually held Amelia Island for three months before surrendering without resistance to American troops that had come south from Georgia <laughs> who held the island, quote, in trust for Spain <laughs> until the Florida Purchase in 1819 made the peninsula U.S. territory. So I hear this, and all I want to do is go to Philadelphia and rally troops to take back Florida. I think we can do it. I, we can probably do it. Rob and I are going to take back Anna Maria Island. Oh, yeah. With a few of our friends. With a few of our friends. And possibly a, force, a live recording. A force recording. of six men. Possibly a live recording. Uh, it's also worth saying that McGregor never made any attempt to repay those who had funded the Amelia Island expedition. You don't say. Uh, so once, uh, once they were back on Nassau, Josefa gave birth to their fo- uh, first child in November, a son named Gregorio. Oof, and the owner that's, of, that's a rough one. Now, the owner of the ship that had evacuated McGregor from Amelia was a former British Marine named George Woodbine, who drew McGregor's attentions to the formations known as the British Legions that were being raised from the mixed ranks of young idealistic Republicans, uh, small-R Republicans, and Napoleonic War veterans in Britain. Now, it's said that there were two, there were as many as half a million Napoleonic War veterans in Britain, a lot of whom were looking for work. And they see an opportunity to jump on a ship and do the only thing they really know how to do. You know, it's pretty attractive. And Woodbine suggests that McGregor could recruit and take command of such a force himself. So, growing bored, languishing in Nassau, McGregor leaps at the chance. September 1818, he makes his way back to London again. He promptly borrows and then immediately squanders a thousand pounds, about $134,000, borrowed from the Venezuelan envoy. He manages to charm a financier named Thomas Newt into taking responsibility for the debt. So, he takes on a debt of a thousand pounds, sweet talks his banker into shouldering that debt, and decides to fund the expedition through the sale of commissions much like he took advantage of, at rates far cheaper than those offered by the British Army. 
Uh, for example, in the British Army, it was a thousand pounds at this time to buy a captaincy. He offered a captaincy for a hundred pounds, uh, and he ends up raising about thirteen thousand pounds, or about one point seven five million in today's money. Uh, enough to recruit 50 officers and over 500 troops with four ships to transport them. So they sail in November 1818, arriving at the Caribbean to neither the 80 silver dollars that each man was promised by the recruiters, nor any arms or ammunition. So, and so that leads the men to just about mutiny. <laughs> like, that's semantics. <laughs> it's, now, securing our, now he manages to secure arms from a South American merchant in Haiti. He heads to Jamaica to arrange accommodations for Josefa and little Gregorio, but he's forced to make a nighttime boat escape to avoid being arrested for gun running. Now, he returns to his troops, who are barely held in check by his second-in-command, a guy named Colonel William Rafter. But McGregor immediately restores morale by announcing that the next day they would set out to attack the rich port city of Portobello in New Granada the next day and seize it from the Spanish. Now, April 9th, they land in Portobello with 200 men, rafters leading the attack. They take the garrison by surprise. They take this port without a fight. They don't have to fire a shot. The Spanish immediately throw down their arms. McGregor comes ashore after the surrender, issuing flowery proclamations of, glory, of victory. Quote, Soldiers, our first conquest has been glorious, and it has opened the road to future and additional fame. Famous last words. Now, failing to capitalize on his victory, as urged by his subordinates... McGregor, instead of moving on to the next town and, and basically rolling the Spanish up, up the isthmus, he decides to set his attention to the particulars of a newly established chivalric order of his own design. <laughs> the Order of the Green Cross. <laughs> so once again, his troops become mutinous because they haven't been paid, and the breakdown of their discipline and their watchfulness allow the Spanish to counterattack, God, I hate this guy so marching much. straight into Portobello on April 30th. <sighs> Now, McGregor is still in bed when the Spanish attack. He's woken up by the Spanish firing on his men in the drill yard. He throws his blankets and his mattress out onto the beach below and jumps out the window. <laughs> and then he attempts to paddle to his ships on a log. Now, by now, now he's somewhat overweight and he's out of shape. He ends up passing out. And he would have almost certainly drowned if it hadn't been for the crew of one of his ships, the hero, picking him up. Well, he then claimed that he immediately raises his standard on the hero, dispatches runners to Colonel Rafter, who has taken refuge in the fort with 200 men, urging him not to surrender. Now, Rafter obliged, and he manages to keep up steady fire from the fort, holding Use off any mattress. Spanish attack. Use the mattress! Use the mattress! <laughs> urging... <You fool. laughs> And he's waiting for McGregor to fire on the Spanish from his ships to support him and to organize a counterattack to knock back the Spanish and hold the town. To which point he immediately heroically charges in and saves the day. Almost. Close. He instead orders his men to turn around and set sail for the high seas. <laughs> <laughs> Completely abandoning Rafter and his men to their face. And that, um, that was another visual we discussed briefly. Like It takes these boats a long time. To turn. So just to do anything. Ugh. That's and you gotta, could that's watch. Gotta, if you're a rafter, that's going to chapter high, doesn't it? Just turn, and then very slowly but deliberately get smaller. <laughs> that's that's got to hurt. Well, it really it really you, sucks because you're, you're looking through your yeah. telescope, and like McGregor's looking back, and you both give yeah. each other the thumbs up, and then he just fucks off. off. <laughs> well, so rafter and his men run out of ammunition. They have no choice but to surrender. They can't hold the fort. And soon Rafter and 11 of his fellow officers were later shot for conspiring to escape. So not a happy ending for this one. Uh, now following uh, a falling out with his naval commander, a man named Hudson, McGregor put Hudson ashore in Haiti and seized the hero, which by the way I have to point out, Hudson owned. 
<laughs> he just took the ship. And, and he renames and he renames the hero the El McGregor. God damn it. He then rendezvous in the Dominican Republic with about 900 additional soldiers and more ships that have been sent by his recruiters for these for the, his British Legion, um, very few of whom actually stuck around despite McGregor's voiced intentions to liberate New Granada because of a total lack of pay, arms, ammunition, or food. So they show up in the Caribbean and there's nothing there for them. So he's left with about 250 it's men who stick around. a trope in the story yeah. of... of um, yeah, there's a pattern here. And he's joined by <laughs> a guy named Lieutenant Colonel Michael Rafter. Now, if the name Rafter sounds familiar, it's because it's William <laughs> Rafter's brother, who has signed on in hopes of rescuing his brother, who unfortunately, he doesn't know, is, was, is already was, dead. Yeah, he was executed. And they decide to attack the harbor of Rio de la Hacha, but they're driven away by cannon. They then effect a night landing further down the shore, which McGregor says, I will lead from the front. So he gets a guy named Nor- Colonel Norcott to lead the men ashore. Norcott waits two hours for McGregor to come ashore. No McGregor. <laughs> he attacks and captures the town anyway, in an actually a pretty skilled night attack. Apparently this Colonel Norcott knew his stuff. Uh, McGregor still, leave, still refuses to leave the ships, convinced that the flag flying over the town is a trick. Now Norcott <laughs> rows out to the El McGregor to tell Gregor McGregor... Hey, we've captured the town. You can come ashore. It took McGregor two more days to come ashore. And He's got to be extra sure. And when he finally stepped ashore, many of his soldiers swore and spat at him. He issued another lofty proclamation of victory <laughs> in which he referred to himself as, quote, His Majesty the Inca of New Granada. <laughs> so once again... I love that, that, that as this story progresses... He goes from like Sir Sir Gregor McGregor to the Inca of New Granada. <laughs> yeah, so much for keeping so much for keeping the just, aristocratic ambitions low key for his Republican allies. It goes and goes, and it's incredible. God King McGregor, <laughs> God Emperor McGregor. Oh man! So once again, discipline breaks down. Drunkenness and a lack of solid command took hold. The Spanish counterattack. Now once again, they hit them by surprise. McGregor takes to a ship to flee, and he leaves behind all but 32 of his men, not one of whom survived the Spanish retaking of the town. The Spanish captured and executed them all. Yep. So, returning to his family, McGregor found that uh, the news of his latest shame had preceded him to Jamaica. So, Josefa and little Gregorio had been evicted from their home in Jamaica, seeking sanctuary in a slave's hut. McGregor is now wanted on Jamaica for gun running and piracy. And a proclamation had been handed down by Simone Bolivar himself that if McGregor were to ever set foot on South America again, he would be hanged for treason. And that's that was his boy. Yeah. They were tight. That was his boy. But that was also before Gregor McGregor launched his own private war. Yep. And went super nuts and started like promoting every dude he liked. Like, now you're a lieutenant because you're a pretty funny dude. Now, Michael Rafter was actually one of the British officers who managed to get away. And he immediately goes back to London, and by early 1820, he's publishing an account of McGregor's failings in detail. Now, this whole time, McGregor's whereabouts in this short period are kind of unknown, but I want to share with you some of Michael Rafter's words. Quote, McGregor was politically, although though not naturally, dead. 
To suppose that any persons could be induced again to join him in his desperate projects would be to conceive a degree of madness and folly of which human nature, however fallen, is incapable. However, Gregor McGregor would soon put that statement to the test the very next year. As he set out to redeem himself in his standing as the cazique of the Central American territory of Poyer, a land newly discovered and ripe for opportunity. The land of milk and honey. There's just one problem. Poyer didn't exist. Nope. And that's where we'll pick up next time. It may have existed briefly, and then, like, even that all just went to shit. And the way he envisioned it never did. But that didn't stop him from telling people it did. (laughs) And the whole story of Poyer and Poyer's cazique, Gregor McGregor, we will pick up next time. God, I fucking hate this guy. <laughs> what a pain in the ass. And, the thing, and, and we had discussed this earlier. I can find something sympathetic about a lot of these people. And I thought going into it, I liked Gregor McGregor. Like initially, because like with Blackbeard, we found out turns out he was actually a pretty solid mm-hmm. dude. And and we have a natural appreciation for like roguish characters. Yeah, and, 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 and people pulling a fast one. And knowing people. like knowing what I knew already about Gregor McGregor, which was really more than anything just about the grift, just mm-hmm. about you know it was, it was like watching the Sting if the Sting was about the Fire Festival. <laughs> <laughs> he is just the worst. He is yeah. just absolute human garbage. He just he's, well, no, he's like that. He's like that guy who organized the fire festival. I forget his name, but he just kept Michael something. Wasn't yeah, it? Michael something. He just kept pushing it down and pushing it down and going. I'll worry about that later. I'll worry about that later. I'll worry about that later. And pretty soon, it's a bunch of rich kids in in FEMA tents eating eating cheese sandwiches. That was, I think the best part is that they were FEMA tents, and then they all and then they all just blew over in a storm. <laughs> like, yep. Jesus Christ! <laughs> yeah. So. We're going to put a pause on the story of Gregor McGregor until next week. Kyle, your thoughts on the man? He uh, had nothing going for him. Uh, he had no personality, <coughs> no charisma. He pissed off every person he came in touch with and somehow wasn't shipped in the process. Well, in the end, he was pissing off every person he came in touch with because he had a way about him. He, was, he could be very charming. Initially. I mean, he made a big impression on some pretty inscrutable people like Simone Bolivar. So he got the big names, but he he didn't pay attention to the little ones. Well, he never followed through. So he got Bolivar, but he was never able to get the support of any of the troops under him. Yeah. Well, and he he talked up his abilities way too much. He made a good impression on the right people to put him in the position, but then he couldn't follow through on it. He didn't have the wherewithal. He was writing checks with his mouth that his ass couldn't cash. And here's my thoughts. Like, I love the Scots. The Scots are my people. I, I have yet... I don't think I've ever met a Scotsman I didn't like... But the thing that will immediately make a Scotsman unlikable is a Scotsman with pretensions to the aristocracy. It makes no sense as a Scot. <laughs> even you know, even your sort of upper class country gentry can be very, you know, very charming. You know, the gentlemen farmers. But this guy walking around going, "No, I'm going to be the leader of Clan McGregor." <sighs> just oh, what a pain in the ass. Like, the only dude that ever just, really Ooh. pulled that off was like Robert the Bruce, but he did it right. <laughs> Robert the Bruce was basically a Frenchman. He wasn't. Yeah, but yeah. whenever he was uniting the clans, at least he had a point. Yeah, and he wasn't just lying the like whole a, time. It was like, no, this is actually happening in battle. <laughs> oh, and uh, the fire festival dude is Billy. Billy, of course it is. Billy right. McFarland. Billy McFarland, that Billy. absolute twunt. Thank you. Oh man, he's a whole thing. Billy McFarlane, the Gregor McGregor of the information age. Blink-182 enthusiast. 
If you're going to pay $12,000 to go see Blink-182, you fucking deserve that FEMA tent. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> I... I don't know, man. I was, I was, because I didn't. I kind of knew the story of the Fire Festival when I was watching that documentary. I can't believe how many people did not know about the Fire Festival because I, oh, I blew that one up. Yeah, like I mean, I'm I, not going to latch on to a story. I like didn't that. know all the details. I didn't know all the details of passing the buck. I didn't know that he was telling the dude go down to the customs office and suck this dude's dick to release the water trucks. I didn't know about that. Right. That was. Yeah, that that, that was got me, but me. it wasn't. It didn't come as a shock to me because yeah. I saw the picture of the cheese sandwich with some lettuce. Yeah, <laughs> that's what a million dollars in catering money. Gets I you. feel like if I like won the trip, like if I if I won a ticket to the fire festival. I would have loved it so much. These just are your, because of these what are your thoughts as a social media. Just because, like, like, watching all these rich kids just freak mm-hmm. out and go like total Lord of the Flies, and I, I just would have been sitting there uh, yeah, just so, enjoying. So all watching that. it as it was happening live, it was really hard to feel sympathetic for anyone involved. It really was because yeah. it was people who willingly dropped twelve thousand dollars of their parents' money to go see Blink yeah. on a battle, and that's well, exactly and, what it and, was. And, and we can handle it. I have been to an AFC championship when the Steelers lost. I have seen the breakdown of society. I have seen a hostile environment. I have survived it. I've been tear gassed <laughs> by Pittsburgh police. <laughs> I have been in some riots. In my my cousin's roommate got bit by a horse. <laughs> <laughs> Super Bowl 40, baby. Let's go. Here, here we go, baby. Here we go. When the horses showed up. Who's yeah. on that horse? Catherine the Great. <laughs> oh, no. It's a callback. Why is she riding from underneath? Oh. Boom. Oh, oh with bro. that. Okay. Gosh, we will. Uh, Jesus, God. I think that's going to be it for this week. Uh, <laughs> before we leave, of course, um, as you probably heard at the beginning of the episode, we do have our Patreon account launched. If you like what we do and you would like to... And you think maybe what we do is worth a few bucks, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash trrpod. We have $1 a month, $3 a month, $5 a month, and $10,000 a month levels. Yeah, you're not going to have to drive uh, to the customs office fully prepared to suck a man's dick uh, for the one, or th- one, three, or five. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how well off you are, uh, but for the $10,000 grand poobah level, you've got to do what you've got to do. Yeah. If you don't kick in, they'll lock you in the basement and force you to be a part of the episode. That's Kyle, right. Nine more That's minutes upstairs. Right, Kyle. In that right, Kyle. Yes. Be a shame if you had to go back in your cell, Kyle. Jack? So kick in. Get the hose. <laughs> Uh, yes, um, donating gets you a special shout out on the podcast. It also gets you at, uh, access to exclusive content that uh, we are going to be putting together here. So, uh, special thanks to our buddy Jojo Vinay. For yeah, who our... actually subscribed to the Patreon while we were filming. Yeah, our first Patreon subscriber. So, thanks, well, Jojo. Recording, not filming. Sorry about that. Uh, special thanks, I'm of so course. I'm excited. Special thanks, of course, always to Jack, the canine outreach specialist, who you can hear click clacking around on the hardwood floor and occasionally he's pretty good today. Occasionally grunting, kind of quiet today. I don't want to tempt fate. Uh, of course, you can always find us on social media. Chris, where can they do that? You can find us on Instagram at trrpod. You can find us on uh, Twitter at podcast trr because some son of a bitch that doesn't use his Twitter has our handle at trrpod. If you mm. guys know him, zero posts. Yeah, saying. maybe go ahead, find that dude, and toss a beating on him. Uh, we have been uploading a couple more episodes onto our YouTube page after, for whatever reason, we were locked out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tried to upload a bunch uh, in one day, and I'm pretty sure they thought that was fraudulent. But the good news is, we're back, we're live. Please go ahead and subscribe to that one. Go ahead and ring that little bell in the bottom right. You'll get all of the episodes as they come up. And if you have any episode ideas, uh, any 
thoughts on the episode, questions, if you have any feedback for us, please send it to us at, I believe, trrpod at gmail.com. That's correct. All right. And, of course, you can find me, Rob, on uh, Instagram at Meatneck. You can find me on Twitter at Meatneck2. And if you want to find me on Instagram, uh, find me in public, give me $5, and I'll tell you what to Google. And then, uh, Kyle, if you want to put your information out there, you don't have to. Or if you have anything you want to plug, let people know about what you have going on. Oh, boy. Um, no, things are things are fine. <laughs> You're busy enough. Excellent. Very concise, Kyle. Thank you for Excellent. your, that's, your that's, input there. That's good. Um, yeah, so hopefully, yeah, Kyle, thanks for joining us today. Pleasure. Um, hopefully... You said you're going to try to join us for next week for part two. We're looking forward to that. Wouldn't miss it. Yeah, I mean, do we want to do? Do we want to wait the requisite week, or do we want to fire out some hot spicy? So let's content? let's wait the requisite week. I think well, because, because we usually do this every other week. So do mm-hmm. we want to do put this up next week? Like, do we want let's to put this? Up, let's put this up next week. I like doing our two parters a week apart because okay. we have most of it covered it. already. But this is such a complicated story when we get to the Poyer scandal that I still have a few things that I want to sort out and unpack and make sure that we're. Bringing you the best story we can. Yeah, this so, this story gets weird. Yeah, you think it's been wild so far? It, it you're gets just getting started. Buckle the hell nuts. up! It's about to get full Scottish batty nuggets insane, and that's really <laughs> batty nuggets insane. That's a special special level of batty nuggets. Yeah. Uh, of course. Also, thanks as always to our friends, the Bloody Seamen, for the use of their music at the beginning and end of our episodes. Check them out on iTunes. They are absolutely awesome. The best pirate punk band out there. Uh, so yeah, we'll catch you next week for part two of Gregor McGregor. Boy, it's gonna be a right, it's gonna be a right bloody balls up. It's gonna be a grand old time. Hey, I've been holding back for the entire episode, so now you can't stop me. I love me. when it goes fat bastard. I oh. do love it. Oh, I, <laughs> he kind of works like, like a, a bear. bear. Oh, all right. I'm gonna say before we get out of out of hand with this, uh, hold fast, everybody. We'll catch you next week. Peace. Peace.